thank you for reading and praying for us, Lisa. Uh, you should know that um, after uh, one of our secretaries, if you know the story, went, um, uh, Gail was, I was only with her for about eight weeks before uh, she got meningitis and and for quite some time, uh, Lori held down the fort. We had uh, Ella, we had others um, who helped out. And then finally, the Lord answered our prayers and brought Lisa to us. And we got far more than what we paid for because there's things you can't pay for. And that is the knowledge of all of you German Mennonites and how you're all related to one another. <laughs> and, and we have that in Lori, um, but that is to be an administrator front office at Bethesda. You have to have some knowledge. And so uh, those two, Lisa has been a great uh, addition uh, uh, to us over the last, I think it's already been about seven, eight months since Lisa has been with us. But we come now this morning to the end of our series that we've been in through Genesis 1 through 3. And we end our study in the very last part of chapter uh, 3. We have seen how God has created everything, and it was good. This is how things began. And then we saw how humanity, the man and the woman, brought sin into the world, and that is, uh, that is the failure, and therefore the, the name of the series that we've had. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things that you have ever seen. Um, he, has, he has made everything. The entire universe is his. He created the man and the woman in his image, male and female. And he placed them in a garden. He placed the man in the garden to cultivate the ground, to take care of it. This man named Adam. And the mandate that he had given them was to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. We call this the creation mandate. So if you've heard me saying that over the last several weeks, that's what I'm referring to. They're right at the end of chapter 1. They have this mandate to be fruitful and multiply. God puts them in this garden, and we know how the story goes. He says there are two trees, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. Do not eat of the second one, for on the day that you do, you will surely die. We know how the story continues. The serpent enters the pitcher. He tempts the woman she eats. She gives to her husband, he eats knowingly, knowing what he is doing, and then the Lord confronts them in the garden. He confronts them after they realize their own shame and try to make a poor attempt at clothing themselves, and he judges everybody. He judges the serpents. The serpent will have his head ultimately crushed by the offspring of the woman. As for the woman, she is going to have pain in childbearing. The irony there that she is going to have pain in the very thing that she is called to do in the creation mandate. The husband is going to work the ground, and from the ground that he was taken, ironically for him, he is going to return back to that ground. For dust you are, and dust you shall return. And so this started as a wonderful story, really picking up in chapter 2, and now it all unravels. It's unraveled the last several weeks. If you've been with us the last three weeks, the month of February, we have just spent time in chapter 3. And now we see how this story comes to an end. And yet what isn't so familiar for us, church, I want us to see that even in the midst of judgment, once again, God's grace shows up. It, in a way, it just can't hide. It must reveal itself. So let's get after this and let's see how this ends. The, the man calls his wife Eve. This is the first time in the 
in the Bible, in this story, that you get the, actually the name Eve. She shows up, um, and he shows up, and, and he calls her name Eve. She had been called woman, Isha, but now for a second time, he gives her another name. And that is that she is Hawa Eve, the mother of all living. This passage is full of irony. Why? Nobody's been born yet. How can she be called the mother of all living? Uh, on top of this, consider the fact that God just got done saying, you're going to die. And yet, there's this word from Adam that says she is Eve, the mother of all living. Uh, some have seen this and, and said, perhaps this is a word of, of hope and trust and of faith from Adam that finally he, he gets it, that he's going to trust the Lord, that this is that Eve would not be barren, but that she would be the mother of all human life. I, I want to say this before you can even get out of chapter 3. What a word to us as Christians that we would see that we all come from the same source. And it reminds us of our equality regardless of our status, regardless of what we look like, where we've come from, what your background is. We all have blood in our veins and we all have ultimately the same parents, Adam and Eve. This should speak against racism. This should speak against seeing those who are, who are better and those who are lesser, higher and lower. It goes right with what we just sang a moment ago. In God's kingdom, it is, it is different. It is backwards in comparison to the rest of the world because we understand that we are equal together. And you see what's being revealed here? There is that command that is still in play. That creation mandate to, to be fruitful and multiply doesn't go away regardless of where their location is, in the garden or outside of it. And yet, even though they will be fruitful and multiply, their progeny, everybody that's going to come afterwards, is still going to die. And so I know you and I are tempted that when we get to the genealogies in Genesis, what do we do? Okay, get right past that, check that off, I read that for the day, Okay. We, we, we glaze over that. But the next time you hit the genealogies in Genesis and you see a phrase that goes, and all the days of such and such were such and such, there were so many, and then he died. Let that be a nail just, that just goes right in every single time that is a reminder of the curse that is right here. Everybody dies as a result of what is going to happen here. And so, so much for the naming of Adam, uh, Adam naming his wife, but I want you to remember where we left off Adam and Eve. Where are they? They're in the garden, but what's their state? They're still wearing those ridiculous fig leaves. And so the Lord clothes these two. We're told that they're clothed. Right there in verse 21, And the Lord God made Adam and Eve, for Adam and Eve, garments of skin. And he clothed them. And so we're told that the Lord makes these garments of skin so that they would bear their shame no more. They are not capable of getting rid of their own shame. God has to do it. Victor Hamilton in his commentary says, Adam and Eve are in need of salvation that comes from without. God needs to do for them what they are unable to do for themselves. And I want you to just remind yourself of what I've been saying the last several weeks. Remember that this was not originally written to you and I. It was originally written to the post-Exodus Israelites who received, they received the law at Mount Sinai. And it is to these Israelites who they received. If you're going through Leviticus right now, just want to praise you for making it through. You're doing a great job. If you're in our Bible reading plan, you're making it through. But let me remind you, that's the sacrificial system. 
These are the Israelites who would have received the sacrificial system. And so in that light, let me ask you, if you're an Israelite and you're, you've got Leviticus in your back pocket and you read those words that he made for them, garments of skin and clothe them, you would be excused as many scholars are for inferring that an animal sacrifice or an animal's death was required so that these two would have their shame taken from them. The death of another was required so that shame could be covered. And if you're a Christian, like you know where I'm going to go with this in just a little while. So just hold on to that. But if you see the grace of God that's right here and how he closed them, they don't deserve it. See the grace even further that in the order. You ever, you ever notice that? He gives them the grace of clothing them, provision and protection before he sends them out in judgment. It, it parallels, if you were to go to the next chapter and see the passage that talks about Cain and Abel, how Cain, after he kills his brother, Cain, Cain is told by God, after he says, anyone who finds me will kill me, the Lord said, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. And then Cain went went his way, and so, and, so far, uh, and so on. And so you see how the Lord works, that even in judgment, he provides provision before the judgment comes. Grace just keeps coming through. He just refuses to leave his own people helpless. This is how the Lord works. And so the inevitable comes, exile. And it's in this moment where Adam and Eve have to depart that we get a front row seat to the inner dialogue with God. This is not the first time. Remember, the first time was Genesis one twenty six. Let us make man in our own image. There's an inner dialogue between the Lord. And so he says, let us make man in our own image. Let us make man. Notice the, the word there. And so now you look at our passage, and it says, And the Lord said, Behold, the man, verse 22, has become like one of us. It's in the plural. You expect the singular, but it's in the plural. Once again, in knowing good and evil. And now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So I'll just give you a couple observations. The first one is this. If you're a New Testament Christian, as we've said before, you can't help but think of the fact that the Lord is triune. There is how many gods? Help me out. One. And how many persons? We're getting it. Praise the Lord. Okay. And so there's one God in the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father who sent the Son, and the Son who has come, lived, and died, and resurrected, has now sent the Spirit, the Father who is, who is the fount of divinity, the Son who proceeds from the Father, and the Spirit who proceeds from the Father through the Son, as theologians have said for, for many years, to try to make sense of this reality that God is other, He is greater, He is triune. And so... You would once again be excused if you saw here that there is a tip of the hat, a nod to the plurality within God right here in verse 22. But secondly, notice who's in focus. Who's the object of what God is talking about here? It's Adam, right? It's it's Adam. The man shall become like one of us. Uh, Again, you just keep going down. Lest he reach out his hand. Later we're told that God drove the man out. And I got to tell you that as I'm reading through this this week, I go, does God have amnesia? Has he forgotten that he also created Eve? Where's Eve in this? She doesn't get a mention after this. Is she less important? Is Adam more of a big deal than Eve? Does he carry more value? 
No, I think that Adam is the focal point here, not because he has, he has more to offer. Obviously, he doesn't in what we've seen so far. Or that he has more value. But it is because of the responsibility that is placed upon him. It was Adam, as we've said, who received the commandment directly to not eat of the forbidden fruit. And when God confronted the couple after they had sinned, it was Adam to first whom he spoke to and spoke against. And it is Adam who is named specifically here. It doesn't say the couple go out from the garden. It says Adam goes out from the garden. But you know Eve is there. The focus is on Adam as he's being banished. And I just can't help but wonder, or can't help but look at this and go, surely this is an incredible word to a husband in marriage, not of his worth, but of his responsibility to his own home. And the responsibility and the consequences that come from calling his wife and his family, God has graced him with that, to obedience. Failure, can do, failure to do so, as we've seen here, it can cause disaster for the family. And so there's a two-sided result that, that comes here from Adam's sin. The first one is that Adam comes to know good and evil. It says, it says those words, that he, will, that he has come to know good and evil. And so I want to ask you a question. Did... Was the serpent lying or not when he said, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Was the serpent being truthful? In a way he was. That is what happened, isn't it? He did say, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and God is acknowledging that here. Was the serpent really telling the truth all along? Or more likely, is it a revealing to us that the way that the enemy comes after us, it's most, most of the time it's never in direct lies or direct falsehoods dr- directly confronting us. It's in the half-truths. Yes, it was true that when they ate, they would come to an understanding that they didn't have before. But the serpent failed to mention and articulate the price that they were going to have to pay. Kent Hughes says that they sought autonomous bliss from God, but it was an illusion and they lost everything. Paradise in Eden, intimacy with God, resulting in both spiritual and eventual physical death. And so Adam would, yes, get 930 years on earth, but he would eventually die. And so the question that you and I have to ask now is this. Don't look at your Bible. Look at me. Okay. Why did God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden? What would you say if someone was asking you that on on the street? There is a right answer to this question, and there is a wrong answer to this question. And I want to show you what I mean by way of an illustration. I want to present a gospel message to you, and I want you to tell me if it is correct or not. Okay? Discern. Here we go. God is good. He created everything, and he said it was very good. But the problem is that we messed it up and we brought sin into the world. And because God can't be in the presence of sin, we became separated from God. But thank goodness God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who died on a cross for our sin, was raised the third day, and all who believe in him will have eternity for the rest of their life in heaven with the Lord and when heaven comes down. Okay, is what I just said true Raise your hand if you think what I just said was true. Like, like 90% of you are like, it's a trap. <laughs> okay? 
It's a trap. If you thought what I just said was incorrect, raise your hand. What do you think? Yeah, if you're like, that's the right answer, right? Okay, yeah, you know I'm onto something, okay? It's so close to being right. And you probably have heard a gospel like that before. I know I've had, I don't know where I first heard that. I'm going to show you what I mean in just a second. But did you catch it? What I said in there that was almost right. It's that statement that we load into our gospel presentations all the time that God is holy and can't be in the presence of sin. Okay? Good. Some of you are nodding. Good to know that you're with me. All right? I hear this all the time. God can't be in the presence of sin. We use statements like this all the time, and I would categorize that underneath generational beliefs. We don't know where they came from, but we picked it. You know, if we grew up in church, we picked them up along the way, but we never took the time to actually check to see, is that what the Bible says? Is that actually, does that hold up underneath the weight of Scripture? So let's ask, let's ask questions. Does that, that statement that God can't be in the presence of sin bear up against the weight of Scripture? Never mind all of scripture, let's just do Genesis 3, okay? Isn't it the Lord who, Lord God, who approaches the man and the woman after they've sinned in the garden and, and, and speaks to them? Clearly, he's in the presence of a sinful man and woman right there in the first part of our passage. What about the tabernacle? Or later, the, tab- the, the, the temple? You stick with the tabernacle, you read the book of Numbers, and you see how the Israelites are for 40 years in the wilderness because they can't get their act together, acting like a whole bunch of rebellious teenagers, and the Lord confronts them. How is he confronting them? How is he in their midst? He's in the tabernacle, right? Doesn't, doesn't the fire come down at night, and doesn't the pillar, uh, uh, the, the, the cloud that is a pillar, rest during the day on them, then leads them out? So clearly God is in the presence of a wicked, sinful people in the wilderness. His presence is there with them. What about the most obvious one? What's always the right answer in Sunday school? Jesus, right? Jesus, right? He leaves heaven. He comes down in the form of sinful flesh. He's around sinners for 33 years, Romans 8, for what the law was powerless to do because it was awakened, weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So if you thought I was being too far in saying that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, it says it there, to be a sin offering. Christ walked and talked with sinners. And so clearly he was in the presence of sinners. God is. To say otherwise would undo the incarnation. And so when you take a few moments to just think about it, the idea that God can't be in the presence of sin just doesn't bear up against the weight of Scripture. And by the way, as an aside, whenever you begin a sentence saying, God can't, you already know you're in bad territory right there. All right, and for that, for, for that sarcastic person in the room who's going, well, God can't, can't create a rock that's too big for him to carry, I just want to respond to that he, and say he's a logical God and would not fall prey to your ridiculous jokes and stuff like that. So anyways, that going on. And I want to say this to you. The point is, is that God is free. And this is a doctrine that we have held on to that has been for the last two millennia that we don't think about nearly as much today. Today, God is free. And he gets to do what he wants, when he wants, 
how he wants. And so the point here is not that God is so holy, he can't be in your presence. It's that he is so holy, you can't be in his presence. And that's what scripture talks about all over the place. When you get to Mount Sinai, as we will, when we get into the Exodus in a few weeks, you see that when Moses goes up, up to the Mount Sinai and he comes back down, he had been in the presence of the Lord, had seen him. And then what happens? Everybody sees his face and there's like a glow or a light coming from his face. They're not even seeing the Lord. They're seeing the guy who saw the Lord and it's too much for them to bear. And so they have to have a, he has to have a veil overneath, over his head, over his face. It's a testimony to the fact that they can't bear up against the holiness of God. We've talked about Isaiah 6. That's another example over and over about how Isaiah, the most holy man in Israel, when he sees a vision of the Lord, what does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. Most holy man in Israel, whose job is supposed to be to speak on behalf of God, when he actually sees God, realizes how unclean his lips actually are. There's an irony there that he is unholy and he needs to be purified. Here's the deal. It is so easy for you and I to compare ourselves to each other and go, I'm better than that person. At least I didn't do that. I mean, I I know I am guilty of saying that. But when you compare yourself, not to the person next to you, but to a holy God, you realize how unholy you are. And so I'm taking time this morning for us to correct a generational belief that some of us may have. We assume that we hadn't, maybe not even really thought about and we undermine who God is. A false view of God who isn't capable of dealing or being around sinful men. It's almost like we're giving sin too much credit. Like sin is kryptonite, what kryptonite is to Superman, what sin is to God. Ooh, I just can't handle it. Oh, it makes me weak. And it distorts our view of God as Christians. Yes, we know that God sent his son to die for our sin, but yet if there's a part of us this morning and your last week was a mess, and you're here this morning going, surely God must be at least slightly disappointed with me, annoyed, disgusted, and probably grossed out. If that is within you, Christian, and you are more focused on the shame of knowing that you need to clean yourself up before God, it's because you have a false view of who God is. God can deal with your sin. He's the one who approaches you. Religion says, clean yourself up before God and then he'll accept you. But the Bible doesn't say that. It says you can't clean yourself up. No, you must be be cleaned by another. You must be clothed by another. We still haven't answered the question, though. Why do they have to leave the garden? That was our original question that we got off on. Let's come back to it. Why do they have to leave the garden? It may surprise you. Now look down at your Bible. Verse 22. Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat. Did, don't forget, there were two trees. The tree of knowledge and of, good, uh, of, knowledge and, of good and good and evil. And also the tree of life. So do you see what's at risk here? This is something that jumped out to me that the scholars point out just across the board. It was perpetual eternal life in a fallen state. The man and the woman. One commentator puts it this way. What was at risk was the undying dead for all eternity without hope. What a horrible picture to imagine to be in a fallen state and know that you would have that for all of eternity. 
And so again, actually, it was an act of grace in the judgment as God removes the man and the woman. And so the eviction notice is posted on the Garden of Eden. They are forced to leave. And Moses tells us here in verse 23 and 24 that God drove the man and the woman east out of Eden. Drives them out and places a number of cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the tree of life. And so as we have said before and we'll say once again now. As the angels are embroidered on the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place in the tabernacle, and as the cherubim oversee the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, and they protect it there, so the angels here in our story guard the tree. And so Adam, who has been given the mandate to cultivate the Garden of Eden, is now sent out of Eden into another land, and in that land, he will still have to cultivate that land, but he will return back to dust. For he was dust, and to dust he shall return. Or he did return. He was alienated from God, exiled from the garden. And this is what theologians have called the fall of humanity. And so this story answers the question how it all goes wrong. And so it gives the Christian, I just want you to think about this for a moment, has so much explanatory power to explain why this world is broken. It was so interesting to me on December 31st as we came into the new year. I don't know how many people I saw on social media that were like, get ready for 2024. It's going to be terrible, right? It's just going to be bad, right? I know I saw that. Surely many of you saw that as well. Here comes an election year. It's going to be tough, right? All of these things. And so when you look at that, do do you ever stop to go, why? Why is it all messed up? And the Garden of Eden story answers why. It's because of the disobedience that led to brokenness and pain and suffering and wrong-headed sinful desire. And so when I talk to someone and they go, I don't know why I have these desires, I can always point them back and show them where it all went wrong. This is where it all goes wrong. This is where it messes, all things get messed up. What a happy ending. (laughs) What a terrible story. The Bible says... Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And the rest of time, the time that we have here this morning, I just want to tell you about the one who hung on a tree of death so that you could partake of the tree of life. You'll remember that I quoted, as you've been with us, as we've been together, Luke 24. Jesus comes and appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus after he's risen from the dead. And as he's there with them, they they are trying to unravel the stories they've been hearing about how Christ has come back from the dead. And he speaks with them, and he tells them about what's really going on. And he says those words. We must hear them again. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do not ever forget it. Even in the passage that we've just been in this morning, it is still all about Jesus. Charles Spurgeon was the 19th century London Baptist preacher. And he tells a story about an old Welsh minister who heard a young man preach. And after the young man preached, he went up to the older man and he said, what did you think of the sermon? And the older man said, it wasn't a very good sermon. And he said, why? Well, he said, because there was no Christ in it. 
And the young man replied, well, Christ was not in the text, and we are not to be preaching Christ always. We must be preaching what is in the text. And this is what the old man said. Do you not know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? Yes, said the young man. Ah, said the old divine. And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures, and that is Christ. My dear brother, your business when you get to a text is to say, now, where is the road to Christ? And when you preach a sermon running along the road toward the great metropolis, Christ. And said he, I have never yet found a passage that had not a good road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find that a text doesn't have one, not a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will make one. I will go over a hedge and ditch, but I will not get past my master. For a sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of the Savior of Christ in it. And so let me show you, friends, church family, here are the roads that lead to the highway called the gospel that get us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Adam attempts to clothe himself in his shame, and he fails, but God must clothe him. And in the same way for you this morning, there is nothing you can do to clean yourself up or hide your own shame. No, you need to be clothed by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God takes an animal, kills it, gives, and gives the skin so that these two would be clothed. And yet, Jesus was sacrificed so that you and I could be clothed with his righteousness. Martin Luther talks about the fact that if you want to understand the righteousness of God properly, think of it like a cloak. I've told this before, I think. Think of it like a cloak that you put on. The finished work of Christ on the cross, you put it on yourself. And so when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you in your shame. He sees his Son and what he has accomplished. Adam was cast out of the, dark, uh, out of the garden But the better, the true and better Adam was cast out into utter darkness so that you would be accepted. Christ left heaven, was cast into darkness and crucified outside of Jerusalem so that you could experience the truth of these words. In no wise will I cast out, he says. Are you here this morning and you are burdened? Know the words of the Savior who says, a bruised reed I will not break. There is a flaming sword that is placed at the edge or is placed there in Eden. And yet Christ had that flaming sword that fell upon him so that you could return and partake of eternal life. The breach was repaired. And we were, though we were cast out of the garden sanctuary, we know that one day we will go into that temple that really isn't a temple, but is the presence of our Lord in Revelation 20, uh, 22. Yes, the flaming sword fell on Christ so that you and I would be accepted. Yes, Christ was cast into utter darkness so that we would not be cast out. Yes, Christ was shamed naked on a cross so that you would be clothed with his righteousness. Yes, Christ was placed on a tree of death so that you could partake of the tree of life. But let's keep going back. Yes, Adam was the one who brought in thorns and thistles through his sin, but Christ is the one who bore the crown of thorns so that we could be forgiven. Adam was the one who failed the test when he was supposed to stand up, and he didn't, and yet Jesus passed the test where the first Adam could not. Christ is the offspring of Eve, and though his heel was bruised, he died. He's the one who has crushed the head of the serpent. He came back to life. Adam and Eve, they fall. Christ doesn't fall. God creates marriage. 
between a man and a woman, and yet we know it is just a mirror to the more true and better reality that Christ is the one who will take all of his people, and there will be a marriage on that last day. Male and female were created in the image of God. They were created in the image of God to be his representatives, and yet Jesus is the better representative. He is the one who is not just not just has he created all things, but he is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, he is the in, image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the exact imprint of the Father's nature, and by his spirit we're conformed into that image. The same Jesus who has done all of this is the word, that when God speaks, the word is spoken, and the breath of the spirit who creates all things does it there in Genesis 1. And if that's not enough for you to not know that Jesus is not in this passage, look at no further than the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what do we know? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. From beginning to end, it is all about Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives grace to you and I when we don't deserve it. And so if you are with me so far, see this incredible God who can speak better words over you. He did create all things. Better words over you than the curses you are speaking over yourself this morning. That is you in this place. See what he has done. I could get up here this morning and I could say to you, don't trust the serpent. Don't trust the lies. Believe in Jesus. Try harder. I just want to say, you can't try harder, but Jesus has already done it all. And when you have his strength, it gives you the ability to do what you could not do on your own. Karl Barth was the one who said, the fruit of the tree, this tree which was eaten, with such relish is still rumbling in all of us. And so as the old man wants to come back into your life, here's how we end this morning. Let us be reminded that we don't have to be like the first Adam because the second Adam has come. And if he has come, We have his strength within us to place our trust in his word, to separate the lies and the half-truths of this world, and turn to the one who says, behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.